0: Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura
1: Rodriguez-McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth-generation NYPD family.
0: Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University.
1: On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura,
0: if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our
1: website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached
0: by email at Ivy League murders at gmail.com and very importantly if you enjoy the podcast please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review we really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far Laura we usually cover cases in the Ivy League today we have the pleasure of talking to two Ivy League of law enforcement, (laughs) okay? Joe Pistone is best known for Donnie Brasco, a book about his six-year undercover infiltration into the New York mob, which became a hit 1997 film starring Johnny Depp. So at roughly the same time, Bob Starkman was an agent for U.S. Customs, seizing huge loads of cocaine off the streets of Miami. He also cracked down on money laundering as part of Operation Greenback. He took on networks run by super violent and powerful cartel members. More recently, and hot off the press, Bob Starkman has written inside both courts about his law enforcement career and a lifelong love of basketball, both as a player and later as a coach. We have the honor of having both Bob and Joe here with us today. Guys want to introduce yourselves, please?
2: (laughs) Joe Bistone a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, retired special agent, Federal Bureau of Investigation, 27 awesome.
3: years. Bob Stockman, Bob Stockman still, and a <laughs> retired federal agent. Previously, I was a correction officer, uh, also a college basketball coach, Broward College, and a few other stops on the way. We're here together.
2: May I add, he's in the Florida Hall of Fame as a oh. basketball coach.
1: Oh, right. And uh, he actually knows a few people we know. We went to a big basketball high school, and uh, Bob knows some Michael Jarvis and some, Pat some, Ewing. Pat, some of the coaches we know. So, Ramil Robinson, when some of the same, same time big time players we there. Went, went to our high school. so. We are
3: very honored to have you here.
0: So how did you guys
3: meet? Well, I was required to go to undercover school, more so for the uh, operation, working in Operation Greenback, more as a manager of an undercover operation. And a former uh, partner of mine said, hey, you want to meet Joe Pistone? we're in this classroom. I said, yeah. So I get up, I go in the back and uh, I meet Joe. He's waiting to come on next, I believe, as the next speaker or instructor. You know, he introduces, says, you know, I'm Joe. I say, yeah, I'm Bob Stockman. I said, man, you look a lot bigger in the book. He goes, glad to effing meet you too. (laughs) That kind of started our relationship. And then another funny part, you know, living in Florida, you get the worst allergies and sinuses. And on my desk, I had like Flonase, I had antibiotics, tissues, you name it. The only thing I didn't have was the Jewish penicillin chicken noodle soup, you know. Joe said, hey, what is that stuff? I go, "Ah, you know, I got a sinus infection. I went through the whole thing. He goes, yeah, I don't feel too good either. So I said, hey, would you like some? I could go fill it up, you know, with, I joke, I say halftime, you know, being a basketball coach, but during the break, and I gave it to him. And then he starts talking. He says, you know, why did you come to this school? I said, well, I heard at the previous schools, you give out an autograph book. You know, I was kidding. And sure enough, during the break, not halftime, Joe came back with an autographed book for me. So we kind of, that's where our friendship began. And then we spent, I think it was a week or whatever it was, you know, he's instructing. School. Yeah, school was a week. Right. You know, just doing practical scenarios, all the different types of undercover work and uh, just, you know, the nuances of it. And uh, just friendship started then. Tell him your, uh, your review of the school. Oh, actually, I have a copy. It's in my book. He actually did the review. I saved it and I was yeah. able to of it. It was very interesting. You know, we joke about it because, you know, me being Jewish and him being Italian, my, uh, had to give us, you know, like a scenario of how we're going to smuggle drugs in. So I used to work at a bagel store when I was in college back in Queens. (laughs) And I said, what we're going to do is we're going to smuggle it on the, you know, the night route. You know, where you have the Bialis and the, you know, the everything bagels and it stunk to high hell in there, you know, and I figured we could put it in there and he probably thought I was kidding at first, but it actually was probably a good idea. And we just <laughs> went on from there, you know, and we learned a lot about each other, and, you know, and we would meet for coffee after that a few times. And, you know, one of the funniest stories I, I said to Joe, I said, Listen, I got this place. They make the best calamari. Okay, let's go. It was right next to the uh, place where we had our mail. You can, tell, him,
2: you can tell he's not a, an Italian because if you're an Italian, you don't say calamari, you know, it's calamar. It's,
3: <laughs> it's okay. You know? Well, however you say it, I take him to the place and uh, we sit down. I order it, and, you know, here I am. I'm with Joe Castone, you know, he's sitting with mobsters breaking bread, meeting the, the worst of the worst. We sit down, food comes out, Joe takes a bite. And he goes, it's frozen. <laughs> I mean, that was the last time I ordered food. <laughs>
1: so. You stick to the matzo ball soup and the corned yeah. beef. We'll get we'll, to... we'll
3: be into it later, but I'm actually like, I've been blessed. You know, I'm, I'm cooking all the... Uh, the recipes Joe, uh, you know, uh, saved over the years from his boys, you know, so. Well, you.
0: you guys have to send us those recipes, okay? I mean, I bet, I, bet I bet they're really good.
3: <laughs> he hired a Jew to be his agent, so it's going to cost you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, give our listeners a context of what was happening, like, with mob activity in New York at the time that you infiltrated it.
2: Back in the, the day when I infiltrated the uh, the mafia the Mafia was at, at its height, and uh, they, they actually controlled the U.S. Nothing moved in the country without the approval of the Mafia. Any truck that went anywhere, if you bought an article of clothing, you were contributed to the Mafia, because there was a tax on everything that went back to the Mafia in some way, shape, or form. Back in those days, they had, you know, they controlled most of the uh, unions. They controlled the uh, construction industry. They had a hand in Las Vegas.
0: This was about 1976,
2: the, that was the first the year. 70s and, and 80s. They also, unfortunately, controlled politicians and judges and some people in law enforcement. So, as I said, they were the, the criminal element, the criminal group that controlled the country, that controlled the country.
0: Was it your idea to infiltrate and how did you prepare for that?
2: Well, actually, I had just I had just done a year and a half undercover operation where I had infiltrated a uh, car theft mm-hmm. ring that was stealing high-priced automobiles up and down the East Coast. And uh, after that year and a half, I come back to New York, and there's actually my supervisor, a gentleman by the name of Guy Barato, who had the idea to get an operation going and see if we could infiltrate the mob. Basically, it was because they controlled all the hijackings in the city, and hijackings of high-value loads... Probably. That's uh, as far as uh, tractor trailer loads of, of high value pharmaceuticals. Any kind of commodities, you know, and these loads were worth eight to $10 million and, and they were losing a lot. And so the idea was to see if we can infiltrate the individuals that were uh, either fencing the loads or the hijackers, but it was all controlled by the New York Mafia. Gotcha. And that's basically what the, uh, the operation was about.
0: But you infiltrated as a jewel thief, basically. So can you tell us a little bit about what you
2: did to prepare for that? Yes. Well, when you go undercover, you, you know, you need a you need a profession. So we decided a jewel thief because you can't go in with a profession that consists of, of violence. You know so you can't be you can't go in as a hitman because that be yeah exactly bad. because you, they're gonna you know <laughs> if you infiltrate you're gonna you're gonna be you a die, right? buddy. So a jewel thief, and not only that, you, you operate alone. And if I was lucky enough to infiltrate, I could bring around diamonds, precious gems that I got from the government and say that, you know, I did a score at the airports, et cetera, et cetera. So that was that's what I was. I went to school. I went to uh, actually I went to Zale, you know, Zale Diamonds. So interesting
1: that you became a gem. Yeah,
2: They had a course. So I took that course. And uh, when I became proficient in you know, pretty much where I can talk about diamonds and precious gems, and then from there, you know, then I had to go out and, and rent an apartment, buy a car. And none of this operation was done with contacts. I just went out and did it like I was a normal citizen that needed to rent an apartment. Went out and bought a car, ordered whatever he had to order, and uh, just started hitting the streets. And hopefully get involved with individuals. But, you know, I did that for like probably six, seven months and I didn't have any real contacts. Because what we did was we had bars and restaurants targeted that I was supposed to go in.
0: Where they were hanging around
2: kind of. Where the bad guys were, yeah. Yeah. And after about seven months I was lucky enough to uh, strike up a conversation with a guy and it went from there.
1: I want to suggest to our listeners that they listen to your podcast, Deep Cover, because I listened to the entire thing. And oh, you really... did? Yes, I listened to the entire thing. And I just want to tell anyone who wants to really go deeper into your story that it's a really, it's fascinating.
2: Deep Cover, a real Donnie Brasco.
1: Really good. And it's very in-depth.
2: I just started recording the second season the other day. Oh, so. yeah. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank Sorry. you.
0: Thank you. And Bob, let's cut yeah, to Miami. Yeah, yeah, let's cut to. <laughs> she's di- she's dying to get to Miami. I'm dying here. to get to Miami. <laughs> here. Here. I was actually just there yeah. about a month ago. I love it. Oh, I love I, Miami. But I'm fascinated with, with
1: with you know what was going on in Miami in the 80s and 90s. I moved there in, I guess,
0: 89. And we just pulled up the time. There's a Time magazine cover that says... The most dangerous city in 1981. Is Miami the most dangerous city in America? This is 1981. And that refers to the huge amounts of cocaine that were just pouring into...
1: Miami. Well, that was... And and all the violence... All the violence, the Land shooting, and then you had the Time magazine, and then you had the Miami River Cops in, what, 1985. So there was just so much violence in Miami, and maybe you can speak to what was going on in Miami in the 80s. I mean, I think people know about that, but you hear about it and you see it in movies, but
3: what was really going on in Miami? Well, I transferred to Miami in uh, August of 85. Right. You were there right in the middle of it. Yes, a couple months before... I came down like unofficially. It was almost like going on a you know a visit to a college, you know, like okay, a scholarship. Yeah. And we went out to work with a few of the guys, just saw what it was like, met some of the bosses. I remember we stayed in a hotel. I remember picking up the uh, Miami Herald and the headlines were like river cops or something. And it, like, they were finding bodies floating on the Miami River and all of this started to get exposed. And uh, I don't know, I just, I guess watching Miami Vice and seeing what this job was really like, I transferred, came down here in 85. I remember it was August of 85. I I, I remember distinctly, August 25th, get off the plane, check in the hotel. I just came down with my old partner at the time, Nick Jacobellis, came down here. Our wives were still back home. We check into the office. They tell us, go to the range, qualify with your weapons. Here's a set of keys, take the car, see you in a week, learn Miami, which is pretty cool because it's similar to my correction experience. You know, you learn the job that way. Right. I, I tell a joke, we go to the range, it's so hot, it's about 105 degrees. I come back, I see this little Cuban restaurant, and I see like that Gatorade bottle, you know, the water outside with the paper cups. And I remember Lieutenant Castillo on Miami Vice always taking a shot of... uh You know, the Cuban coffee. I ordered them with my broken Spanglish, as I tell everybody. And for the next week, I had the worst case of my stomach. Like it went right (laughs) through me. So that was my experience. But started working and seeing what it was like. I mean, it was a couple weeks, one of the other agents made a case, and it was like 300 kilos. You know, back then in New York, you get two to five kilos, it's pretty big. And I'm like 300 kilos. You know, this is before cell phones.
0: Give us a sense of what that, like, what's the volume on that? It's hard to conceive of that amount of
3: cocaine. 300 is nothing. Wait till you get to the 1,000 kilos. It's like mind-boggling. It's just like bricks and bricks. You know, it looks like you're in Home Depot, you know, looking at the different bricks to use for your garden. Right. But the hardest part was, you know, when you're thinking, you know, you, you like to believe everybody's, you know, straight and on the up and up. And I don't want to see you naive, but you believe guys took this job and, you know, whether you're a cop, an agent, whatever it is. You know, for the right reasons. And then I remember watching Miami Vice and Tom Johnson said something that made so much sense. He said in Miami, you can't tell the good guys from the bad guys. Yeah. And that, that was the thing that was really scary. And especially, you know, anybody could have a weapon in Miami. So you know, you're making a vehicle stop or you're, you're going on a vessel, you know, even, you know, with the seaports, you don't know who has a gun and who don't, you don't know who's good and who's bad. So you always have to keep that in the back of your mind. And I think being a correction officer, was one of the things that really helped me to further my career in customs just by dealing with inmates, knowing they're bad, expect the unexpected, and, you know, hopefully nothing will happen and use your brain, you know. Just moving on, you know, just seeing all the the volume of dope and the amount is just beyond belief. Just the, the difference, like, you know, when they say the cocaine capital of the world and just like everything, you know, you had so many different organizations operating and one of the biggest problems until they try to come to like some type of format to fix it, was like, you know, we could be sitting on a house, when I mean sitting on a house, surveilling a house, or tailing a bad guy. And you don't know if there's been times I've been followed by the FBI or, you know, they were following the same suspect or the guy we were meeting with in exchange. You know, it's just, you have to really be on your feet. And I was very fortunate as my career moved on, where I started bringing in the local cops to work together. So we had every angle covered. We had Dennis Gavalier's group from Broward County. He had great cops with him, Bert Vachaud and Billy O'Hara, and just so many good guys. And then we started working with Metro Dave. That covers, you know, Dade County with, that remember the lieutenant was Russ Kubik, Tommy Williams, Tommy O'Keefe, just on and on. And Coral Gables, Police with their group, with Wayne Harris. We just, you know, we formed a good team. And it was kind of like basketball, you know, and it's like, it was so good to have every angle covered.
0: Yeah, I know. Laura and I are going to step all over each other. Uh, no, I mean, I think it would be hard with the
1: temptation with that much money available. And I moved to Miami in the late 80s, and that's one thing that struck La- me. Laura's, was- Laura's got a little larceny in her soul, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> but I mean, what- <laughs> One thing that struck me moving there from Boston was just the amount of, I guess, drugs and money that were just everywhere. Even in the late 80s. I mean, it was just everywhere.
3: Well, like I the said- money, like- The
1: cars, the, I mean, into such abundance.
3: You know, there was so much. And, and that's how you always knew when there was, you know, the cocaine was getting through because of the price. When the price went down, I mean, there's more product. Right. And when the price went up, there's a reason. But- I always said, like, you know, the money part, working the money part, I enjoyed because to me, it's like, you know, if you lose your wallet or your paycheck, you worked hard for that. It's hard to get the cash back. Right. But you lose the dope, that just keeps on coming out of the mill. You know, they keep on producing it. So you just kept on pushing forward, but it was was overwhelming. You know, you could always find something to do.
0: And so you worked for U.S. Customs, which is, is interesting because, You guys were really on the front lines of seizing a lot of the cocaine. What were some of the more inventive ways people actually got the cocaine into Miami from presumably like what Colombia, Peru. It had a channel. I know that, but like, how would people get the product to, or try to get the product into Miami?
3: Well, I would say, you know, there's a will, there's a way. A lot of things that people didn't understand, like with customs, like I would say, Oh, I'm with customs. They would say, what airport you work at? Those are the inspectors. We were criminal investigators, special agents, and we worked the street where they're working the airport. Between money and dope. I mean, dope you know, was coming in They were doing airdrops. They were using different uh, countries as transshipment points. You know, the Venezuelan-Colombian border, things were coming across, bringing them in a container, cargo containers. They'd come in an airdrop, small boats through the Bahamas, concealment. There was just so many ways. And then once they got here, what we call the stash houses, they had the coleta, it was called. My Spanish isn't too good. It's about as good as my Italian. You know, you would see false walls. You would see false compartments in cars. And, And that, you know, we always worked together really well You know, I always said on on an agent to agent basis, detective to agent basis, like with DEA, with ATF. I mean, I I worked with a guy, Larry Loveless, you know, he was just great. And we were able to, you know, share things and try to get the job done. But there was just so many ways each week, you know, there'd be another seizure. Oh, we just found, let's say, outbound currency going out in refrigerators or, you know, even body carries. They had body carries coming in internal, they used to call them, where they would have the cocaine packed in condoms and then... They would come in and excrete them afterwards. The problem is sometimes they blew up, you know, they opened up and it, it, it was just, it, it just amazing. Like you could go on and on with that.
0: And you even, in your book, you say that it came through in cruise ships, actually, right?
3: Yeah, I actually started working cruise ships other than the inspector's work. I said, you know what? Got to be more than just you know nickel bags coming off. You know, it wasn't the large amounts because of you know the concealment area and the amount of people. So, you know, I mean, at one time we arrested the whole Calypso band from uh, Carnival Cruise Lines, the whole, you know, and you know, it was just amazing. Like, we didn't know. We were sitting on it. We had some information. And, you know, you, you always think you're shrewd. And there's always somebody that's shrewder. And these guys, you know, it's 85 degrees, 90 degrees. I didn't even think of it. They're walking off with, like, jackets on. Why do they have jackets on? Somebody said, that's them. Get it. We stopped them because you have unlimited search authority. And sure enough, they had it all taped to their bodies. It was 10 kilos, which was a lot for a seaport case. You know, if it was coming in on a freighter, you could get anywhere from 100 to 1,000 kilos. So I just wanted to... I figured those are good, you know, you hit the little guy, hopefully they'll cooperate to get to the next level.
1: So Um, Bob, if they make a movie out of your book, who's going to play you?
3: Probably Fred Gwynn, but he's dead.
1: (laughs) We we were thinking, we were thinking Vince Vaughn. No, we were thinking, yeah, we thought Vince Vaughn.
3: Yeah, because they're both 6'5". That's
1: what we thought. We love Vince Vaughn. Because Joe got Johnny Depp, great casting. Yep.
2: Can't beat it, right?
1: Yeah, great
2: casting. I should be so lucky.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I we think Vince Vaughn will we'll push for that. Oh, we'll push, push for this to get made into I think it would be a phenomenal movie. Oh, I think so too. Really? I, yeah. in sports and sports and it's I love the backdrop. I love the type the chat. Everyone should go out and get this book. And the chapter title,
0: I love the chapter. The names. Cha- it's amazing. Very, very well done. You know, that's one question that I had. You guys met in 1990. That's what I read. I don't know if that's...
3: somewhere around there.
0: Yeah. And so, Joe, did you approach Bob and say, gosh, you know, your stories would make a great book? Or did... Or, Bob, did you approach Joe and say, hey, look, I have a book in me about this stuff? Like, how did that... How did the genesis of your book come about? I
2: I think he always had in the back of his mind that he wanted to do a book. And uh, the last few years, you know, it was his idea... I backed him on. I think you should compare it with your basketball.
1: Yeah. I... Your life and
2: law enforcement, because you such you were such a good basketball coach and you were mm-hmm. such a good customs agent with all the good work you did. Mm-hmm. And see how it crossed over, you know.
0: And you see in the book too how basketball and law enforcement, your careers both kind of you weave them together really well in the in the book.
2: I have to say this and give him credit. He wrote this book himself.
3: Yep. Right. I tell everybody, I couldn't even do a term paper in college, but, uh, you know, I I just did it. But what happened is, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. And I had a couple other names for my book. You know, one was going to be Fed Up, but that's kind of negative. You know, the other one I thought would be like Follow the Bouncing Badge. I had a little niche to it. My son, Rob, who owns a big sock company, said, Dad, he said, Inside Both Courts. I'm like, wow. Like he just came up with it like this, you know? And I'm like, wow. it It has a little kick to it. So during the pandemic, I, I was writing things over the years, putting things down. I always saved a lot of pictures, even before cell phones in the jail, corrections, both both jails. I started with customs, even basketball photos I had back from the 70s, you know, with the short shorts on. Yeah. And,
0: uh, <laughs> I, love, the,
1: I love pictures and
3: books. Yeah. Oh, you. So during the pandemic, I just cleaned out our dining room since nobody's home and I made it my little office and I started writing. And what happened was, you know, I'm a typical regular guy, I would say, I get on my computer, I would type, and let's just say I spelled your name wrong. By the time I hit shift, alt, delete, everything was gone. So I was losing them. So I had to call Joe, and I said, Joe, give me some advice. He said, get a pad and pencil, start writing things down. Boy, it was so much easier because if I spelled something wrong, erase it, cross it out, keep on going. So I said, you know what, so I don't get brain freeze. did about eight pages, which was a lot. I tried to do almost a chapter a day. I really didn't. Now what I did was a former basketball player of mine, Joe Lopez, was playing pro basketball over in Spain. I said, Joe, you know, I'll pay you a few bucks. You know, I'll scan some documents every, you know, couple of, you know, days you do it and he would send them back to me. So I started accumulating it. And then I would send, let's say, maybe I did, let's just say 20 pages. I give it to Joe and Joe's first words were, don't take it personal. We're going to, you know, to help me. And I I didn't, you know, because he's written enough books and he's a lot wiser with that. And we sat there, and I would change things, you know, add this, take this out. And it kept on getting bigger and bigger. Another former assistant coach of mine told me, hey, he'd just written a book. He hired this lady that was an editor. Her name was Alexis Byrne. She was great. And all her job was to do the font, put it in order. You know, and really, it's hard when you don't understand the lingo. You know, if we use little terminologies, like, for instance, you know, we seize money. We use an expression. Oh, we ripped somebody last night, which actually caused me an internal affairs investigation once, but you know things like that. So she did all of that, and then as we progressed, you know, he would look at it, okay, too much again, put this, and I just kept on doing it, and I would send it back to him until finally it came to fruition.
0: I love that you have a glossary of terminology in the book, and the font is very big.
3: That's for all those guys <laughs> over forty and retired.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: I mean a lot
3: of compliments on that.
0: <laughs>
1: it's very helpful and i think the terminology i married into a big NYPD family so i'm actually used to this terminology because it's like thrown around in like you yeah. know they yell like CO and these terminal you know it's regular in the mcdonald's want to, they want
3: to go on the gate you know things like that
1: yeah on the job and all that stuff i'm used to it but but for for most people it's it's pretty new well
3: if i might say one thing uh you're Brother-in-law was a hero in uh, New York and in the NYPD. And, yes, he you, was. You can't go to guys like him, you know. Yes,
0: so but, thank you for good. mentioning him. Yes, he, he so. truly was. And you, too, you both had jobs that put your own lives on the line. Yes, and absolutely. You you both had families at the time. And what were some of the scarier moments for both of you?
2: In six years on the cover, you know, when you're with a violent group, you're going to get into confrontations. You're going to get into uh, people don't like you, not because they think you're an undercover agent, or you're a cop. They just don't like you. I mean, it's like in real life, people don't like everybody. You know, right. It's not a kumbaya world. I had several close calls. One of the guys that, that I was with in the Bananos didn't like me, was jealous of me. And there are certain things in the mafia that, that'll get you killed. And one of them is stealing money from the family. So in the the beef that we had, he made the allegations that I stole $250,000 from the family. They called for a sit-down. And uh, what that is, it's in mob terms, a sit-down is is, is a meeting. And it's like a trial, basically. The accuser has his people that lie for him. And then the accused has his people. And then they have a mediator, uh, which is a jury in real life and uh you present your case each side presents their case and then the mediator decides uh who's telling the truth
0: (laughs) and it's not like you have evidence
2: you have to rely on your credibility well yeah you got to rely on your credibility you got to rely on you know like this individual you know he had other mobsters that lied and said that they were there when i took the money they knew i took the money et cetera et cetera but i was lucky that that uh, now that happened three times I won all three sit downs, but what you have to remember is is that if you lose a sit down in this situation, you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. Because one of the rules in the mafia is uh, that'll get you killed is stealing money from the family. That's one of the <clears throat> rules. There's no appeal system. You know, if the mediators decided with the other side. You don't know, leave there alive.
1: I thought it was interesting. Um, I, I heard you mention in your podcast, among the rules that can get you killed is you're not allowed to touch a made man.
2: That's a very important rule.
1: And I, I never had heard that. So yeah, if um, you get in an argument with a made man, you can't, you can stand up for yourself, but you're not allowed to touch them.
2: And if you insult him in front of other people. Right. That can get you killed too. You can't embarrass can be, him in front of other that people. That can get you killed and you're in this verbal confrontation and he gives you a slap, you can't retaliate because once you put your hands on him in that type of situation, he has the right to kill you. And again, when you're in deep cover like that, you're going to get into verbal confrontations with people and you're going to get into physical confrontations. You just got to hope that the physical one isn't a main guy. You know, you can retaliate against anybody that that's not a made guy, even though he's associated with the family. So I got into a couple of situations uh, where I got into verbal confrontations. I got one with, with two guys. One was a made guy. One wasn't. And you can't say after after it's over, you can't say, I'm sorry, because they don't understand that because you have to maintain your respect and credibility. So what I did was I just clocked the guy that wasn't a made guy. (laughs) I mean, that's that's the only way you maintain your credibility and respect.
0: And Uh, Bob, yeah, I was going to say, how about you, you, Bob? Well,
3: I I think, you know, being a correction officer really opened my eyes. And uh, we were back then in 1980, we got hired, we were called two-day wonders two days in the academy and right into the jail. And at the time, they put us in Greenhaven State Prison, which is a pretty rough jail. Two um, days? That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, you know what? You learn your job. And, and I will tell you, like I said earlier, working in a jail really helped me further my career. You know, you you're with convicted murderers, rapists, robbers, drug dealers, you learn a lot about the body language, the lingo. You learn how to speak. You also learn that your best weapon in jail is your mind like how do I respond back to them? What do you say? And, and that definitely set the tone for me. I mean, even in basketball, and I'm not comparing my players to inmates, although we did have a few, you know, just just the way to react like, you know, it's like being a parent, you know, one kid needs a hug, you know, one kid needs your credit card, and the other one needs a kick in his butt. So, you know, you learn that as a city correction officer, when I became a city correction officer a year later, I had a special housing unit, which was called the Bing, but it was really called, I think it was called punitive segregation or whatever. It was the worst of the worst. And I had basically, if there was 14 cells, I think 12 were cop killers. The other two were really bad. Across from them, I had, you know, what they called the snitches and we had cops that got locked up. So I had uh, one point I had a major confrontation with a known Black Liberation Army cop killer. And this was, you know, I'm a, I'm back then I was about 275. I was a lot bigger. I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 6'5". You know, you, you, you have to like, that's the thing. We have to think fast because, you know, Joe's situation, it was credibility. He, it's basically the same, just in another type of environment. Like, you know, I back down. Every inmate's going to think I'm a chump. You know, they're going to get older on me. And that's not who I am. I never was. And we kind of went at it verbally. And uh, finally, you know, I was giving him the answers he didn't expect to hear. You know, and then finally after that, my final saying to him was, you know, I told him, I said, you may be a cop killer here and a hero among all these inmates. But I said, well, you go where I just came from, Greenhaven, you're just a number. And he looked at me and it was like, remember the movie Brubaker with Robert Redford?
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. The They're going stalk men, stalk <laughs> men, the whole, whole war. Yeah. So you know, you learn from that. There's been confrontations, you know, physical confrontations where you have to You know, as they say, use enough force necessary to effect an arrest. And, you know, the whole idea is, and it's in any job. I don't care if you're a fireman, you're a cop, you know, whatever you do, even a cab driver, you want to come home at the end of the day. You have to use your brand. And I'd like to say, you know, that's definitely, and I I could say it a thousand times, that those two jobs, working in Greenhaven and the Queen's House of Detention, really educated me in so many ways for my law enforcement, furtherance career, and Mm -hmm. basketball as well.
0: And you, you both in both of your books and in the movie, Donnie Brasco as well, you both have humorous moments that come up too. I love, I actually found on YouTube, forget about it, the clip about forget about it. So, so Joe, I got to ask you, you know, was that real? What does forget about it mean? Forget about it. it. Just means forget about it, you know? <laughs> You're so much better at saying it than me. <laughs> yeah, the New England Wait.
1: nurse don't say it quite as well. So what, what does it mean? What does forget about it?
2: Well, it just means, you know, just forget about it. Don't, you know, you can deal with it. You can't somebody, Bob. Look at these two good-looking women we're, we're having a podcast with. <laughs> I'm Bob jumping it. to the screen. <laughs> Bob, says, Bob says, forget about it. And that means, yeah, they are. Look at these two good-looking women, you know? Or you can see somebody, you know, some uh, individual that's not too good to look at. And you say, oh, forget about it. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> so it can go either way. But I think it should go this
3: way. <laughs>
0: what is that? Forget about it. Oh, forget about it. Oh, I want one. I
3: want one. I love it's it. The only one. <laughs> we can trade. i see how much eBay offers me, here. Sure.
0: Oh, I love it. And and Bob, what about you? There must have been a you know, humorous moments.
3: Well, I mean, I have a chapter in my book, which I call Inside Both Court Bloopers, which is similar, you know, like to the basketball. So I have stories from like between from coaching things that were said and in mm-hmm. law enforcement, I mean, there's been so many, even in jail, like the, what comes out of people's mouths, you know, it's like when you're taking account, that means, you know, doing the, you know, making sure we are taking a head count. So, you know, like you always get some wise ass and like, I remember, okay, on account, that means, you know, they got to stand up. Some guy yells, on account of what? I said, on account, I said, so I'm coming down this tier right now. You know, <laughs> just little things, you know, I've had basketball players say things to me, you know, like you got to read the book, all the listeners, read the book. That'll be one of the fun chapter's in there, you know? Yes, it is. And I saved them over the years, and thank God I have a really good memory. Just things come out like you would never expect.
1: And I really love the way you are really like a mentor, almost a father figure to your players, and you expect them to behave in a certain
2: way. If I can interject, I, I, you, you are 100% correct in that statement because anytime I'm, I'm down here and, and it's basketball season and I'm down visiting Bob and I go to his games, I see the way that players treat him mm-hmm. and respect him. And then I also know how many players that have been out of school five, six years keep in touch with him. Mm-hmm. Keep in touch with him.
1: So important.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I think that's like such an, a huge role. And I know athletes who are, you know, our age, who we grew up with and their coach really is like a family member to them. Oh. It has, she has had a huge impact on their life. And I think that's just an enormous responsibility and role. And I really, I'm just, I, I'm in awe of that. Me too. A lot of young men and women don't have that Structure father and, or that you know, father figure. And yep. then, you, you know, to come in and to to fulfill that role is just so important.
0: I have to tell you guys one funny story that, because I've been in, I've been a PI for 21 years. I've gone into prisons many, many, many times, uh, friends with some of the COs actually up here and stuff like that. But we were... Myself and the attorney were interviewing a client one time and he was up on pimping charges. And this guy was hilarious. He was so outraged. He was like, I am not a pimp. I I am a straight up drug dealer. Like he was outraged, you know, that anybody would smear his name like that. It was so funny. I was like, I think this guy's being honest. You do get these funny, like gallo humors kind of
3: moments in
0: in this business.
3: People would not believe it unless you're in the field. Like, you know, you could tell some stories, you know, and it just Where do they come from? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: I mean, I think it's interesting too, the way you have to almost, I mean, I must have to compartmentalize it and and keep it separate and then go home and live your life in in order to, otherwise it must be too all consuming.
3: You know, it's like anything else, you know, they they always say you take a job home with you. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, there's so many better moments that I felt in my career than the, you know, the, the moments when, you know, you're accused of something and it was probably somebody else just, you know, we used to refer to them as rats. And it was very interesting just reading some of my reviews that I got talking about like, you know, you know, who's real and you know, who's not, you know, what guys are saying, the guys that work together with the real guys, you know, and there's always rats. or so guys that were, you know, it's even in sports overzealous, you know, and it seems like when you do something right, people think you're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? And if you're just not winning and you're not doing nothing, then you're okay. But no, you know, I always felt I had a job. You know, there's a certain time to play and there's a certain time to, you know, kick back. You know, playing means working. And, and that's the same way, like I, I was in coaching. And I, I try to use that. My attitude was basketball. You go out, you want to win some games, you know, you want to make people succeed. You play as because at the junior college, you know, they have two more years after they leave. You don't want to see anybody get hurt. You want to win a few games. In law enforcement, to me, it was the same thing. You go out, you know, you work a case, it's like planning for a game. You got to have your, you know, it's like your scouting report. It's kind of, you know, your intelligence report. You don't want to get hurt. You know what I mean? And, and I definitely, you know, never lied in court. So that means I never cheated. I never cheated in basketball. And you just, you have to look that way. And if you lose, you come out again, you plan and you you go at it again. And that that was my whole, you know, attitude on inside both courts.
0: It's great. You both, uh, it's amazing to meet individuals who have had such an impact on these two major things. I oh, mean, you've no, got mob in New York and a cartel drug infested Miami, and you both have done an amazing job. Which leads me you know,
1: to my yeah. next question because I'm, and to both of you, I'm curious, how have you seen it change? So, Bob, do you think it's changed that much in Miami or has it just gone undercover?
3: Well, and again, this is my personal opinion, you know, it's mm-hmm. hard to say, you know, I know like my generation, I'm sure Joe's, and um, we all took these jobs because it's something we wanted to do. I always wanted to become a New York City police officer. Right. What I did to get there, and it never happened, and it was going to happen to three days before I graduated the Customs Academy. So I think, I don't know, you know, like with the politics, everything has changed. You know, we had that merger where, you know, we were just U.S. Customs and then it became Homeland Security and we merged with immigration. It was ICE at first. And I think sometimes, you know, you're taking away from what you know, you really do. You know what I mean? Like, like customs, and I say this even with Joe next to me, a lot of people used to leave their agencies to come to customs. They really did. I mean, we had FBI come over. We had ATF. And not that people didn't leave customs, but a lot of people came to our agency because there was a wide variety of jurisdictional investigations. But I, I, I'm not sure if like this generation really took a job for the right reasons, which I thought were my right reasons. I think after 9-11, a lot of things definitely changed what the, uh, you know, priorities were. I always joke, I say that, you know, after 9-11, I think the traffic is really made out because everybody focused on terrorism, yeah. you know, and it, it's just weird because I also was assigned to the FBI for five years. A lot of people don't know that as the agent over there prior to 9-11 and after. I was
0: going to ask you, how did 9... You say in your book, yeah. how did 9-11 affect... What were the changes after 9-11? I,
3: I think it opened up, I think, more with the... Uh, you know, after 9-11, more with the intelligence agencies. And, and again, I can only speak for myself. I always had great pause with it. You know, if I work with DEA, FBI... I mean, I was there for five years. DEA agents I worked... Uh, that That's me. But once it gets past a certain level you know politics do
2: step in you know prior to that there was a policy not a policy a memorandum Mem- a, a memorandum that the intelligence community couldn't share information with the criminal side of the case of the case so i mean how crazy was that
0: I think it made us more vulnerable to being attacked, frankly. Of course. You know? I mean, if they had been able to get together and mm-hmm. say, hey, guys, we've got this guy and he's flying right. planes and not learning how to land,
3: <laughs> you know. And again, I think Joe and I are very good friends and, you know, I highly respect him as a friend and more so as an agent as well. But- I remember reading in, uh, was it Jurgensen, Randy Jergensen's yeah. book, A Circle of Six, he was a retired guy, how Joe, everybody would always say the feds, you know, they don't work with everybody. But again, that's on a one-on-one basis. And, and he got high praise from Randy Jurgensen, who was a top-notch detective, mm-hmm. you know, years back. I always got along with everyone myself. And that made our jobs easier. You know, there's a certain way of doing things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not breaking the law. But like, uh, I, I learned from a friend of mine, Tommy O'Keefe from Metro Day, he used to go like this to me all the time. One hand washes the other. And, you know, at the end of the day, your goal is to put a bad guy away. Press conferences, we don't get on press conferences.
1: And Joe, what about you? So you said when you went in to infiltrate the mob, they controlled everything in in country. And that's not the case anymore, would you say? I mean, they've lost that power.
2: Yes. uh, In the U.S., I'm talking about the the, the American mafia. Right, right through all the investigations we've done, when I say we are talking about the FBI and other federal agencies, we have basically broken the back of, of, of the American Mafia. They don't control the major unions anymore. You know, they may control a union here or there. They don't control interstate commerce anymore like they used to. They don't have the control over politicians that they used to, judges, law enforcement. So I mean, are they still involved? Of course, but not on the grand scale that they did back in the day. What's overtaken them now, it, from what I know, are the Albanian mob, the Russian mob, the
1: Italian mob,
2: aren't they? Way, way, way more violent than, than, than right. the American mafia. You know, <laughs> if the American mafia had any, any saving grace or, or, or whatever, anybody that got killed by the American mafia. Was in business with them. Right. They don't kill citizens, you know? They kill their own, or they kill an individual that's been in business with them and screwed them in a deal or something. Where these other organized crime groups, they'll kill anybody. Doesn't make any difference. So the
1: crime hasn't gone away. It's just been picked up by somebody
2: else. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
0: We could talk to you guys for hours. Do you have another question, Laura? (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, I I could talk. I could. I'm ready to fly down. I am so ready.
3: Nice. It's severe and clear. It's about 85.
1: To Wolfie's on North Miami Beach
0: and. some, uh... She's such a Miami girl.
1: We
3: stay away from Miami Beach for the next few weeks to having trouble down in.
0: Well, you, you know, I know no, I, 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 I I'll, I'll tell you a it. funny story. I was telling Laura before we talked to you guys to this question of whether there's still cocaine around Miami. I went down there uh, a month ago, so I had some young guy come up to me and go, "Like Colombian." And I was like, "I'm blonde. Like what? The, like I don't look <laughs> Colombian. Like what the hell?" She didn't you know, get it. I didn't get it till the second one was like Colombian. I was like, "Okay, yeah, no, I'm not interested. I, I'm good. Thank you very much." That's Colombia. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: well, when I was at University of Miami, I mean, people were getting students were getting busted for sending cocaine back to their hometowns yeah. because it was half the price you know and these were wealthy college students you know mm-hmm. doing stuff like that because it was and it was just getting cracked down on in the late you know late 80s early 90s And this was starting to really occur because of the price differential. People from East Coast schools were going to Miami and it was happening a lot.
0: Yeah, I bet. I bet. What is
3: next for for both of you?
0: Bob, you have just come out with this great book. And so, what? Where? Where can our listeners find this book? Then
3: the book is on Amazon. It's called Inside Both Courts.
1: Yeah, we'll hold it up right here. Everybody should. got it
3: here too. See?
1: It, yeah, I mean, if you like law enforcement, if you like basketball, it's really, oh, or yeah. if you just want a great story, I mean, it's all here. It's really, really fascinating. And we have Joe's book here too. He is right there. One of Joe's books. One of Joe's books joe's many books
2: yeah, that's the first one donnie
3: never yeah. the mafia. and this was my first first day i met joe see that and i'm the cover school
1: <laughs> i know I'm, look at this i even have a, a <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just, it's just to laura though i, I, know. I mean you know I are <laughs> have, have to come
0: down there and have coffee with
1: you guys yeah.
2: at coral yeah exactly We'll get you real good books. That's right. And Joe, what's next for you? We mentioned the podcast, Deep Cover to Real Undy, Real Donnie Brasco. Production company Jam Street Media, but you can get it anywhere you want to, where you get your podcast. I also have another podcast, which it's not mine, but I'm, I'm the second season. There's a podcast out called The Undercovers. The first season was with uh, Eddie Follis, who was a retired DEA agent, did a lot of undercover work. The second season is going to be Unfinished business. Donnie Brasco. They're just editing that now, and I think we got nine, nine or ten episodes. But it's a uh, it's narrated by Ed O'Neill. You know Ed O'Neill, the actor. Oh,
1: yeah, I love oh. Ed O'Neill. Yeah. Oh,
2: then, uh, also by Ray Liotta. Oh, oh Ray. Oh,
1: Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah.
2: I think they're looking for like May, maybe.
1: Nice. And again, we encourage everyone to to yeah. get both of your books and to listen to your podcast because it, it really is fascinating. I mean, I just binged on your podcast and it was, I mean, they just flew well, by. I mean, it's so fascinating. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat and I can't imagine that
2: that was your life. Well, yeah. Tell <laughs> your was, listeners. Tell your listeners. We are. Actually, wow.
1: we'll put up a link on our Facebook page so everybody can um, well, check it out. thank you. I
2: appreciate that. Because
0: I hadn't heard of it before, so I really want to spread the word. And I got to just say, this is such a you know we're both total crime heads and this is you know usually we really do cover what would you say our our, our crimes yeah, are, we, we
1: cover kind of like fancy crimes yeah <laughs> yeah i really crimes so
0: this That's is kind of dirty huh? yeah yeah where it's like why do the super privileged you know, yeah we, make the worst decision a human yeah, being can make so kind the, of thing, but so. this is
1: just this is su- this is really fascinating and you know, we got to rewatch the movie, which was and oh, we didn't even mention that. Bo- yeah, Bob's in the movie. Did we mention that?
3: Yeah, so, yeah but yeah. if you sneeze, you'll miss me. Too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, still, you you have a
3: you're. Hey, in I've movie. been trying to ride on his coattails for years. You know now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like now, now people we, say, "Hey, they go Bob Stockman. They got Joe Stones on with Bob Stockman. It's not yeah. like Bob Stockman's on with Joe, you know." <laughs>
1: right now, Bob, yeah, now Joe's writing on your coat tails. So
3: yeah, so if you um, got a movie
1: made with you. Yeah, you know what I'm I'm slipping
3: in like five dollars. Joe, mention me. Like, I said, oh, yeah.
0: Hey, Vince Vaughn, I see it. Yes, yeah, Vince Vaughn, I yeah. see it. The real yeah. Miami Vice, and I then that we'll, get, we'll get you get you can get Joe a walk on
3: part in your movie. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give him a little more. He could be like the executive director, you know, consultant. Right,
1: right. Yeah. Give him a little production credit. Right, oh. right.
3: Joe would play Mark Wahlberg instead of Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Joe. <laughs> the Boston guy, right?
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, you guys, thank you so much. What well, an honor.
1: Absolutely.
3: Thank you. Thank you, you
1: know, I appreciate yes. it. Thank
3: you very much for having us. Yes,
1: this is more than a pleasure.
0: you.